Welcome to the Austin Institute's podcast, What We Can't Not Talk About. And so the basic idea is that, look, love, marriage, sex, and babies go together and in that order. But when we start inverting this order and moving sex over here and babies over there, I think civilization itself begins to crumble. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of What We Can't Not Talk About, the podcast of the Austin Institute for the Study of Family and Culture. Today, we have a hot topic, maybe not hot topic, we're talking about chastity. Just as much as our sexuality, chastity is definitely of crucial importance when we want to talk about family and marriage and even about dating. However, it is no mystery that this topic is basically non-existent in the public square. Perhaps if you ask a bunch of religious conservatives, they may know what you're talking about, maybe. And in fact, a quick Google search will tell you that chastity, so the refraining from extramarital sex, is a principle of all major religions. So it's not just a Christian thing. But for the majority of the post-68 Western world, chastity is not even a value. For many, it is an instrument of oppression. Abstinence perpetuates the idea that sex was somehow special, a physical activity different from a workout or a dance session, which for some is nonsense. Philosophically speaking, passing through the words of Reich and Freud, the West has come to equate sexual repression with forms of repressive politics, whereas sexually permissiveness is freedom. And personally, I grew up hearing all about consent, about contraception, about reproductive technology, but nothing or very, very little about the importance of our body and the need to protect it. So I'm under the impression that things were and are a little bit different in the United States compared to Europe. But to talk about this and to talk about a lot more, we have invited today a true expert, and I'm honored that he has accepted our invitation. So let me introduce you to Mr. Jason Everett. Welcome, Jason, and thank you for being with us. Thank you. It's good to be with you today. So for those who do not know you, I've called you an expert on the topic. Would you mind introducing yourself briefly to our audience? Yeah, for the past 26 years, I've been traveling around the world speaking about the virtue of chastity, God's plan for human sexuality, the theology of the body, predominantly to high school students, young adults, college students. So I've spoken to about 2 million people in person on the subject. I'm married, have eight kids, and uh, we live in Scottsdale, Arizona, run the website chastity.com and the ministry with that, which is Chastity Project. And you also have a podcast. Yeah, the, the podcast is called Lust is Boring, and uh, we've done about 90-plus episodes on every topic under the sun having to do with chastity, human sexuality, gender, modesty, pornography, chastity before marriage, in marriage, and all of that involves. So since most of our, not most, but a lot of our followers and students that come to our events and programs are study philosophy and mm -hmm. analytical philosophy, and they love definitions. How about we start yeah. by defining chastity? And since you're talking about lust, lust. Yeah, well, I think it helps to first define what it is not. And so chastity is not the same thing as abstinence. Abstinence is just the absence of sex. So it's really what you're not doing with your sexuality. It's not celibacy. Celibacy is the state of not being married. So it's not 
specifically that. Chastity is a virtue, kind of like courage or honesty, but that applies to your sexuality. And it doesn't eliminate your sexual desires, but tries to order them according to the demands of authentic human love. And so the function of chastity is to free you to love and to free you to know if you're authentically being loved. Because, well, how does it free you to love? Well, if I cannot say no to my sexual impulses, then saying yes to them really means nothing. And so if I'm a single guy and I can't even control my own body by myself, then when you get married, you're not really making a gift of yourself because you can't give what you don't possess. And so a man who doesn't have self-mastery, I don't think will even be able to make love to his own wife. He'll see his wife's body as an outlet for what he thinks of as his sexual needs. And I think a woman's heart can perceive the difference. And so it frees you to love to make a gift of yourself because you have that self-mastery, self-control. But then it also frees you to know if you're being loved because if a person is unwilling to be in a relationship with you, and not you provide those sexual benefits to them, well, is it really you that they want or do they just want the pleasure that they're trying to get from you? And so you might feel wanted, but they might not want you any more than a smoker wants cigarettes. Like, I mean, smokers don't want cigarettes. Smokers want the feeling they get from the nicotine in the cigarette. And then once it's smoked down and the nicotine's gone, they just flick it into the gutter because the cigarette isn't what they wanted. And so in the same respect, chastity liberates you to know if you're authentically being loved or simply being you. So it's not simply what you're doing in the bedroom. It's what I'm doing with my imagination, what I'm doing with my speech, what I'm looking at online. All of this involves this virtue of chastity. Now, lust, on the other hand, is not the same thing as sexual desire. Because if people think sexual desire is lust, then they'll constantly think they're failing at chastity because they keep having sexual desires. What lust is, is the reduction of a human person to their sexual value. So their sexual value is real and it is good, but their personal value needs to come first. And so what lust does is it kind of subverts the personal value under this hierarchy, making sexual value predominant for the person. So that's what I value you for most is your sexual value. And so lust means to use just as chastity involves to love, to give oneself, to do its best for the other. Whereas lust, you're basically doing just what feels good for yourself. You don't really desire the good of the other, you desire the other as a good for yourself. And so lust is not the enemy of passion. Lust is really the enemy of love because what real intimacy is, is really seeing into the person. But lust obscures the value of the person by making their sexual value come first. Wow. This was very comprehensive and very, very helpful. And to the point of like a woman can tell the difference, of course, of course. Most women, however, want to lie to themselves and say, no, no, but what he really wants is me. Women, I think, have a a mechanism like they like to be, they like to be deceived because they want to believe in love so much that they're just blind to the reality that is in front of them. I hope that this episode will somehow make them a little more aware of what a man is also capable of. Because what I think when when we address the topic of chastity, I feel somehow you can make a parallel to the the topic of fasting. You know, now fasting is very common and people do intermittent fasting. And and one thing that strikes me is that if someone never fasted, they're gonna think, you know, this is impossible. Like, oh mm-hmm. no, like I can't do one day, I can do two day, three days, and like yeah. and then you hear of those that did, you know, the 40 days fast. Yeah. And I think that somehow with chastity, the conversation is the same. Do you mm-hmm. do you think I'm right? I'm wrong? Like yeah. And if you don't know how to fast, I don't think you know how to feast. 
And that's the same with human love. If I don't have that self-control, I don't really ex get to experience the joy of self-giving love. It always just seems like an outlet, this urge, this itch that I have to scratch. And it's just an instinctual level instead of something that's under my control. And you had mentioned like women can perceive the difference. Like I think a woman can tell, not just close up if a guy is looking at her as like some thing to be used for his gratification, but I bet a woman can probably perceive that from a hundred yards away. And it would create in her, I think, maybe sometimes at first, a delight of like being looked at when she really wants to be is to be seen, but she settles for being looked at. But then eventually it creates like kind of this, this restless vulnerability, even this resentment towards sexuality and men, if all she is, is something to be used for his gratification. Whereas if the man has purity of heart, John Paul II said that he can actually give to his bride what John Paul called all the peace of the interior gaze. And to me, this is a really loaded, beautiful phrase. It's talking about just the absolute peace and tranquility a woman feels and knowing that she's being looked at as a respected and beloved companion instead of something for his gratification. And so you, what you want as a man is to be able to have enough self-mastery to give your bride this peace of the interior gaze. And I think when women hear that, it resonates. It's like, yes, that is what I want. That, And I think for guys too, it's like, yeah, I, I want to be able to give her that, but... <laughs> How do I do that when I've been hooked on pornography for nine years and I've got like these porn goggles on my face and I don't even know how to assess the value of a woman except for how much lust she generates in me. And so the chastity is a process, but if we don't learn that self-mastery kind of like fasting, then I don't think we're living a truly human life. It's almost like an animalistic one where my instincts tell me what to do and I blindly follow those impulses. Well, let me ask you this question then, since you mentioned the elephant in the room that I always want to talk about because it's the number one problem when it comes to marriage and dating and sexuality. You said, how can a man who's been hooked on pornography for the past I don't know, two years, three years, five years, 10 years, even try to think or understand chastity? So the question is there for you because this is the reality that surrounds us, right? So how do the young men that are listening to us and you know, can be even like 30 or 40 go about it when it's just about them? And how do younger people go about it? And what should parents do? So let's start maybe yeah. from the from the older folks, the ones that need to be attracted themselves. Well, I think, well, for the older people, like parents, one of the things that they can do for the kids is become computer literate. Because a lot of these parents don't even know how to open an email attachment. And their kids like hacking into the Pentagon's website for fun after school. Like they got to catch up and you've got to learn, okay, is my internet browser set up safely? What about the router? How about social media? What's going on on my kid's cell phone? Do you have accountability software and filters in place, whether it's Covenant Eyes or Canopy or Bark or all the different software that's out there, you've got to be able to protect the kids from this stuff. And I tell my kids, look, it's not that I don't trust you. I just don't trust pornographers. Okay. And so I'm not just going to give you some unfettered internet access because I know it takes a tremendous amount of self-restraint to stay away from that stuff that's thrown on your face in a continual basis. And it's not just the guys either. I mean, the average age at which a boy is first exposed to porn now is between nine and 11 years old. And unfortunately, the girls aren't far behind. So more and more young women are struggling with this, thinking, well, I'm a freak of nature because, you know, I'm not even sinning in a feminine way. This should be a guy problem. And it isolates them in a lot of a spiral of shame and loneliness when in reality, no, lust is not a guy problem. It's a human problem. And we've all got to be able to fight this thing to be free to love. And so if you're struggling with it, 
I think the number one thing you need is accountability. You need to be able to share this with somebody who you trust and love, whether it's your pastor, whether it's a counselor or some role model, and be able to answer to them like, hey, how's it going? Are we making some progress? If that's not working, let's try this. You know, let's try that. You've got to be reading good books. You've got to be deleting apps because what's the alternative, really? Like for a young guy, like, do you really want to be? Like some 30-year-old dad has got to slap your laptop shut when your five-year-old daughter comes in the room because she can't see what dad is seeing. It's not the father you know you want to be. And so if we can just trash this junk, we can actually be free to love. But you've got to be willing to do what it takes to kill this thing. I mean, I tell high school boys, do not even ask a woman on a date if you're still looking at porn. You can't do it. Like you can't ask a woman to commit to you unless you're prepared to be faithful to her. Because look, you can have your pixels or you can have a person, but you may not have both. And so pick. If you want to spend the rest of your life having some erotic moment with a laptop in your room, ask yourself, is that really what you crave? Maybe it's just that you're bored and lonely and angry and stressed out and tired, and you just run to the quick fix, leaving you feeling more bored, lonely, angry, stressed, and tired after you you know, dive into this stuff. Let's learn how to break free from this stuff. Why? For the sake of love. Not because shame, not because sex is bad and dirty, but precisely because it's so good. And women deserve to be loved. And you deserve to be free to love. And so, yeah, some major steps might need to be taken. You might need to go to like even a, a sexaholics anonymous group if it's become severe enough to go to counseling. But heck, do what it's got to do because love is at stake. Like your future children's lives, your vocation is at stake. You could miss the whole boat because you can't say no to some Instagram reel. Like that much is at stake. Thank you. And I want to... I want to ask you a couple of things about what you just said, because I think I heard an interview you gave, or it was a, maybe it was when you were hosting a podcast, I can't recall. But I know that you made a statement that it was something like you should be free from porn or from an addiction to porn. I can't tell what you said, but like for a couple of years before you can actually really love. Now you just said you shouldn't be asking a girl on a date if you're using or watching porn. Now, I want to premise this. I completely agree with you. I completely agree with you because what you said, it's not about, it's not like about eating one more candy, but it's the, the idea of you have or what a body is for and what sex is for. So that for sure. However, we also know what the numbers are. We also know what the statistics are. And if men, you know, use that standards on themselves, I don't know that there would be anyone dating anymore. At the same time, I also know that part of me, if not all of me agrees with you, to the extent that I would tell all the women to not date someone who's, who uses porn, even if it's an accident, with the consequence that it would be tragic, but it would be, well, if for a couple of years someone needs to not be dating and not having kids and they're like, let's, let's deal with that. You don't use an improper instrument to do something beautiful. Like somehow we need to, we need to get back in shape, all of us, both men and women, before we before we get married and start families, which are something precious. At the same time, how do we balance of like, we know we will never be perfect. So like, where is, where is that limit? What, you know, from your perspective as an expert, as someone who has talked with a lot of guys, I suppose, if not both men and women. 
Yeah, it's hard to put a hard and fast number on like you shouldn't date for two years, you shouldn't date for one year because the nature of the addiction is different in every case. I mean, you might have a guy who's got a full blown compulsive porn addiction and strip clubs and all this stuff. And like he might need literally two years of serious psychological counseling and spiritual direction before he has enough affective and spiritual maturity to enter into serious marital discernment, which is dating in preparation for engagement. He might need a two year window. You might have another guy who's dabbled in it and he's doing pretty good and he's he's making progress and he has a slip up every one of them, but he's going to counseling. He's got a good spiritual director. He's really tracking in a lot of progress. I don't think he necessarily needs to wait two years before he goes on a date, but it's got to be in the rear view mirror because it's one thing like porn creates this wound and it's not enough. Just pull out the sword. It's like, okay, it's gone. It's like, yeah, yeah, it's, it's gone. But like your innards are spilling out of your body. Like you need to stitch this up. You need to heal. You need to take a little bit of time to restore the way you even look at women and relate to women. And so for each person, the timetable might be different. That's why it's hard to kind of hard and fast rule. But I think what the women need to remember, if if the guy that she's interested in is, is looking at pornography, and maybe he's given her a hard time about her high standards, fidelity is not like some optional upgrade to a relationship. That's like someone selling you a car and be like, oh, wait, you want tires too? That's going to be an extra $5,000. You want tires on this thing. I mean, the person buying the car should be like, well, no, 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 no. It should come with tires. I'm not asking for a sunroof. I'm not asking for leather seats. I'm just asking for what should be standard, which is basic fidelity. And so don't allow yourself to be gaslighted into thinking, even as a wife, well, I have to look at these things because you're not as available to me as you used to. To be and you're not as skinny as you used to be. Of course, I need to do this. That's gaslighting. That's just projecting onto her your lack of self control and saying, you know, you're the one kind of causing me to do this. So if you look like some flawless airbrushed supermodel who look different every 50 seconds, then maybe I wouldn't have to look at this stuff. That's a total lie. Of course, the wives can't live up to porn to compete with them because the porn models can't even compete with each other. You think a guy who looks at porn is faithful to like one porn website or one porn star, like, oh, it's her for me. And that does it. No, it trains you in this mental polygamy. And so don't get sucked into this gaslighted argument that like you're somehow the root of his lust. No, no, no. That's in him. That needs to get healed. And, and the roots could go down into childhood and all kinds of stuff. There was a guy named Jay Stringer. He's an evangelical therapist, and he studied more than 4,000 people of what they were looking at in terms of online porn. And he discovered that there were these templates of what they were seeking out and what it said about their unmet needs or trauma. And it was fascinating stuff that he discovered. Like if you're looking at this type of pornography of older women or younger women or women that porn that humiliates women or porn that does this or that, it probably indicates maybe you came from a very authoritarian, rigid, shameful family, or maybe you have a distant relationship with your mother, maybe this. And he started to create these templates and he found that people fell into these different funnels. And that's why he said, it's important that we treat these addictions, not just as the problem, Oftentimes, they're a roadmap towards that person's healing. If they can just have enough compassion on themselves to have some curiosity about where this is coming from, instead of just white knuckling it and condemning themselves. Yeah, and thank you for mentioning Jay Stringer's book. I I read it this past summer and it struck me, it came to mind as you were speaking, like you don't want to be that 30-year-old dad that shuts his computer when the children come, which is also something that he mentions it's the source for some of people's addictions is because someone in the family was mm -hmm. leaving stuff around. And like, so for the young men that are listening that are already fathers, it's inevitable. 
that this is going to be discovered, this is going to be found out, and this is going to affect your kids too. Now, I've asked some of our undergraduates to um, share some, if they had any questions that they would have asked you if they were here with me. And I think that the consistent answer is like, okay, we understand that chastity is good for the body, but what does it mean in terms of the soul? It's like, what is my emotional or spiritual chastity and what should that look like? Well, I think of the beatitude where our Lord said, blessed are the pure in heart for they shall see God. Well, let's flip that backwards. If I'm not pure in heart, I'll have a very difficult time seeing God, not only in heaven, but in this life, in my own spirituality, in seeing God in women, seeing God in myself, seeing God in nature. It, it kind of get really blurred out. And then you find people having all these theological, oh, I don't understand why the church this and church that. But I remember, I think it was G.K. Chesterton who said that all heresies begin below the belt. And what he meant by that is this clouds and darkens our intellect and our spiritual senses. I think it was a St. Alphonsus Liguori said that when a raven finds a dead body, the first thing it does, it plucks out its eyes. And he said, in the same respect, the first injury that impurity inflicts upon the soul is to take away the light of the things of God. And so I'm reading a book right now by Father Jacques Philippe, and he's talking in there. It's, it's a, the school of the Holy Spirit. And he talks about that. Each time we receive promptings from the Holy Spirit or graces, even just little ones, and we respond to those, it opens us up to receive more graces. And if you respond to those, you get more graces and more according to what's given to you. To little what you're given, you respond to that, you get more. But in the same respect, if we get those promptings and we say no, we get those temptations instead. Instead of the Holy Spirit, we'll listen to a different spirit. We start saying yes to that. These spiritual opportunities, they're harder to respond to. We become weaker in our wills. And so try not to get overwhelmed. Like, oh my goodness, how am I going to go the next 80 years of my life without looking at porn? Just today, just look at the present moment. The devil's always wanting to push you into the past. Oh, you did that. You think God loves you or shoving you into the future. Oh, you think you can sustain this until you get married? You might not ever get married. You think you're going to find a good spouse in today's world. The devil's always trying to get you into regret of the past or anxiety of the future because God is in the present moment. And so the question is, okay, in this present moment, can I respond to the promptings of the Holy Spirit to do what I'm supposed to do? Whether you know I'm, I'm sitting here and I'm in a state of desolation and I'm lonely and I'm angry at God. Okay, how do you sort through that? Instead of just running to porn or drinking or, or bad consolations, maybe I need human connection. They say the opposite of addiction is not sobriety, it's human connection. And so we've got to look for answers that are true consolations instead of the false ones. And that'll give us greater clarity of vision when it comes to spiritual things, because it'll help purify our heart. But but it's a battle. It's not like you make, okay, I signed my little chastity commitment card and I'm good. Like this is, it's a daily thing. It's a minute by minute thing. But in the minute, in the moment of the temptations, the graces will be present. So I would say, if look, if you're getting a temptation, just stop. Maybe say, thank you, God, for making her beautiful. And God, I'm sorry for the times I've lusted at her. Please give me a clean heart. And God, please bless her. Please bless her vocation. Help her to become holy and beautiful as her body is holy and beautiful. And God, but you're the ultimate beauty that I crave. You know, you are the love that my soul aches for. And so we can see her beauty as an invitation to respond in love instead of to shame or to lust. Which I completely agree. You're going in a very religious dimension, right? So we are assuming that we're talking to a religious audience and we, we largely are. 
However, you know, we also believe that the same truths can be discerned rationally. And so I would not be surprised if a lot of our audience, non-believers, agree with every word we said and that there is a beauty that can be discovered exclusively through a virtuous knowledge of the other person, right? So getting to know the other in a way that is pure and it's chaste. So we're looking for human connections. And if we look for human connection, what comes to mind is then dating and a chaste dating. What does that look like in a time where not only we've lost a script and so people, you know, we grew up watching Sex and the City. So first you go to sleep with someone and then you maybe start talking. But so provided that that's not part of the dating, how should the young people, and even not just that young, you know, like let's even talk about the bachelors that are in their late 20s or like early 30s. Live on their own. Like, what do you do? You never invite someone over because of the risk of falling into temptation. Like, very practical, you know, tips. Yeah. Well, you've got to see where you're at. I remember I got an email just a couple of days ago from a young single woman. And she's like, you know, how far should we go in terms of guarding the innocence of this relationship? Should we uh, never be at home alone? Should we never drive in a car alone? And I said, you know, look, it, it really depends on the relationship. If you can't be in the car alone without falling into temptations then yeah, don't be in a car alone. But the goal isn't to forever lock yourself up in separate rooms because if heaven forbid we are ever alone together, we couldn't help but consume each other. Like, no, ultimately the the point of love is to really be free, to be free in each other's presence without having to fall into making all these mistakes. But every couple's in a different place, but we want to get to a place of of that freedom where we could be alone and not have to worry, oh, it's always going to lead to this or to that. And so some people say, well, look, if you're not going to at least do sexual stuff together. I mean, how are you going to know that you're sexually compatible? Well, what I would say to that is like, well, the opposite is the real fear. Like, what if you are sexually compatible and it's just fireworks in the bedroom, but that covers up an absence of love that simply failed to develop? Because if anything comes naturally, typically it's sexual chemistry. The question is, can you argue respectfully? Do you agree on the size of a family? You know, can you disagree and still love each other? Like, do you agree on finances? Like, a lot of these bigger issues that contribute to marital stability get kind of covered over and wallpapered over when you've got just lights out in the bedroom and everything's great there. Look, if you get married and you're not perfectly sexually compatible, guess what? Try again, you know? And if that doesn't work, try again. And you'll be able to figure it out. I think you will make love as you love. And if your love is selfish and self-absorbed and aggressive, like that's gonna translate into the bedroom. But if I know outside of the bedroom how to put the other person first and to be tender and to consider their needs before my needs, I think all that's going to translate into the bedroom to making love that really unites the couple. And so th- this idea that like, well, sex is almost like a tryout. It's like, what? Like, okay, so what What if she doesn't make the team? It's like, well, you know, I really appreciate you trying out, but didn't quite do it for me in the bedroom. So I'm going to have to let you go. And like, wait a minute, is that what sex is? Is like a tryout? The total gift of the body should correspond to the total gift of the person, which is marriage. And so the basic idea is that, look, love, marriage, sex, and babies go together and in that order. But when we start inverting this order and moving sex over here and babies over there, I think civilization itself begins to crumble. 
It does. And we've been able through technology to do all of the above. And it's it's amazing to me how there's like such a contradiction, like a lot of people, you know, in the, the hippie world, are like they would never divide body and soul. They always get together, right? Like what you do with your body is so important when you greet the sun, but then suddenly it becomes not important if you're in a bedroom and turn mm-hmm. on the light. So it amazes me, but like, let's try to bring consistency to this thought and think that we're never just, you can never detach our soul from our body. I know you're very busy. I just, you know, this is a question I should have asked at the beginning. I'm going to ask it at the end. Why did you end up doing what you're doing? Yeah, there were two reasons. I was in college leading some high school retreats and the the kids would open up to me about all the struggles that they were having in this area of relationships, sexuality, and family. And it was like they had no formation in it at all. They had no concept of what chastity is and how that frees you to love. And I remember Steve Jobs once saying that people don't know what they want until you show it to them. And I don't think there's anywhere that's more true than chastity because you hear the word and it sounds like some frigid, neurotic, repressive attitude towards sexuality when that's not it at all. But when I started sharing with these kids what chastity actually is, the light bulb, you could just see it go on. It's like, yeah, that is what I want. I want to know how to find, build, and maintain a relationship of lasting love. I want to know that I'm not being used. I want to know this is the right person for me. And so the, the kids really responded to the message. And at the same time, I was doing crisis pregnancy counseling, talking to women who were contemplating an abortion. And it was real close to their appointment time. It'd be like within an hour of their abortion. And I really started feeling late. Like, why am I meeting this woman who's 25 years old and having an abortion in 45 minutes? Why didn't I meet her when she was 15? Because maybe if she learned about chastity then, she never would have dated this guy to begin with and be in this difficult situation today. So I realized I'm kind of like standing on the banks of a flooded river, throwing sandbags on there when there's a dam that's broken a quarter mile upstream. Everybody's focusing on the supply of abortion, but nobody's dealing with the demand for it, which is unchastity. And so I, I realized that this virtue was kind of at the root of so much of the hurt and confusion. Just as love naturally leads towards life, Lust naturally leads towards death, not only physical death with abortion, but emotional death, rates of depression, spiritual death, sin, things like that. I realized that this virtue is what we think is the enemy of love is the only thing that's going to free us to love. And so I just started sharing that message with young people you know, about a quarter century ago, and then it kind of just snowballed. And as I did more talks, the young people had questions. So we create resources, like uh, we've got books for the guys called The Dating Blueprint that actually teaches them how to date instead of just giving them a list of thou shalt nots. We've got one for the young women called How to Find Your Soulmate Without Losing Your Soul. It's like a manual on how to avoid losers. And so we've created all these different resources on breaking free from pornography for guys as well as girls, a website, which is chastity.com. And so it's all about just wanting to come alongside these young people to help them to find the relationship that's really going to help them to flourish. Jason, thank you. We will, of course, put all the links to all the books you mentioned, to your website, to your podcast. I have the highest opinion of the work you've done and to this 25 years of really service to the future generations. And I think we can leave them with a positive message that it is possible. It's like eating healthy is possible, right? We don't need to to be unhealthy in the way we behave with food and same same way we can be healthy in the way we behave with our sexuality and with our bodies. Jason, thank you again. And I hope to see you soon in Austin. Thank you for having me on. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you enjoyed this episode of our show, What We Can't Not Talk About. If you like this episode, remember to share it among your friends, subscribe to our channel, 
And if you can, please donate to the Austin Institute. With your support, we can continue to do this. We can continue our programming. And of course, we will continue to support the research of our fellows. Thank you.